0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed
1: to change. Dr. Jody Rummer, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Oh, look, it's a real pleasure. So where are you calling from today?
0: So I'm based in Townsville, which is in the northern part of Queensland, East Coast Australia, right in the centre of the Great Barrier Reef. That's my favourite landmark to uh, sort of denote where I'm located. I'm based at James Cook University.
1: You don't sound like a local, Jody. How did you get to Townsville looking at reefs?
0: I don't know. Eleven and a half years. I'm pretty much part of the furniture now. <laughs> a, f- a few words come out and, and I will uh, confuse people a little bit with my <laughs> accent. But I actually grew up in the middle of a cornfield in the Midwest of the United States, in just outside of Springfield, Illinois. So Springfield being the capital, a lot of people, first question they ask me, Home of the Simpsons. Of course. Uh, that's still up for debate. <laughs> I have a US passport. I've been an Australian uh, resident almost since I got here. I think, like a lot of kids watching documentaries about the ocean, National Geographic, BBC, and just fell in love with the the unknown underwater world growing up and just wanted to see what the ocean was all about. So fast forward, bachelor's degree, a master's degree, all the research with master's, a PhD. I moved to Canada, actually. So I spent much of my adult life in Vancouver. You know, not so coral reefy there, but really immersed myself in in sort of the inner workings of the fish that I would end up studying as a huge part of my career their physiology their athletic capacity which is one of the ways I like to talk about my work fell in love with Vancouver i think it's one of the best cities on the planet and uh, i think that's that's really what set me up that education during my phd and sort of the networks that i developed during that time really set me up for the job that i have now so i interviewed for a position about a month out of my PhD here at James Cook University. I was doing a postdoc at the time in Hong Kong and working with some really interesting, fully transparent fish called glass catfish and had thought, oh, wow, this could be my dream job, James Cook University. But am I really ready for like the big job yet? And yeah, I, I started my position in August of 2011 and have just been really building my career and my research program um, here based on the the Great Barrier Reef at James Cook, as well as some other locations around the Indo-Pacific, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and really making a life for myself here in Townsville.
1: It has to be said, it is an incredible career and a lot of people, at least at some stage of their life, aspire to be a marine biologist, yeah. uh, And but you are the bigger you're, you're the professor of marine biology at James Cook University. Look, you're very prolific. Like normally we try and do, like at least one of us tries, tries to do a lot of research in the preparation of these uh, podcasts. I let the uh, listeners speculate as to who it might be, uh, whether it's Jeremy or myself, but you are so prolific. It's almost, it's a daunting task to try and review what you've produced <laughs> over your career because it's incredible. It really is.
0: Thanks, Brad. Well, I think sort of in this past 11 years, I realized how important science was for everyone. You know, it's not just for us, you know, nerdy scientists in our lab or in our offices, hunched over our laptops, thinking about all these cool, in my case, physiological mechanisms that help fish work in their environment. But really... It is for everyone, and I had some incredible opportunities along the way to learn how to make my work so much more accessible to everyone and to make science truly for everyone. And, you know, with a lot of the implications that my research has in terms of conservation and preserving biodiversity and you know, as I, as I said, when I was probably six and wanted to, you know, first be a marine biologist, saving the planet, it's the general public, the taxpayers, the people that have voting power, the people that are in those legislative and policymaking positions that are going to be able to help us make that difference. So um, that, that became very important for me. And that's part of why I do the science in the way that I do.
1: It's a really great point because historically scientists have been, you know, I guess, stereotyped as stand in lab coats in a lab, do the occasional published paper in a, in a journal that very few people, uh, at least from the Joe Public perspective, will read. But you obviously put yourself out there in the public sphere. And obviously, this is one example, like on, on a podcast, and there's a lot of podcasts and various news articles of yourself. And we could talk about almost any one of about 30 different topics I've seen you have commentary on. But can I just pick one for a sec? And I, I'm really keen to geek out on the athletic awesomeness of fish just very quickly. I got this out of one of you, and I'll include it in the link in the show notes. It was, I think it was an ABC News article that I, you penned. It really is incredible. Can we just compare, for example, Michael Phelps versus, <laughs> versus fish for, for at least a minute?
0: <laughs> Poor Michael Phelps doesn't have a chance. <laughs> yeah.
1: So let's talk about speed for a sec. So Michael Phelps, fastest swimmer of all time. Compare that to the fastest fish.
0: First of all, we have to correct for size, okay? So, <laughs> you know, some of the fish that we study are little Nemo hatching right from the egg. And what's really cool about the little Nemo that hatches right from the egg is that they are that amazing pretty much right away. So, yes, they're like a grain of rice, but 20 body lengths per second. Incredible. That's really fast. That's really, really fast—over 20 body lengths per second. That's how we are able to compare a little hatchling Nemo to, you know, the machine that is Michael Phelps, or you know, pick any other elite yeah. athlete on the planet. That was a really fun piece to do with the ABC. I was doing a residency with ABC and Radio National down in Sydney, and you know, speaking of one of those opportunities to just make science fun, yeah. And that was it. I tweeted it a few times. Phelps never commented. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like you know, hanging his head in shame that, you know, Nemo beat him, but it's quite incredible. And the reason that we think, you know, from all of our research that such as a a larval reef fish, they need to be so efficient and and so fast, really, from the Mm get-go, from hatch, is because they spend at least a couple weeks of that time right when they hatch in the pelagic environment. And so the pelagic environment is like the open ocean, you know, there's big, vast expanse where they are trying to eat as much food as possible, they're trying to grow as much as possible, and they're just really trying to to bulk up and develop as quickly as they can because soon they are going to undergo metamorphosis, you know, like the caterpillar to the butterfly. And they're going to change their body a little bit to look like what they would look like as an adult. And that corresponds to when they settle onto a coral reef and then that's their home for the rest of their life. So they've got this like party time out in the pelagic where they have a lot of stuff to do. So it makes sense that they have to be pretty efficient with everything, really, really good athletes, and then find that reef, find the perfect reef at that. Um, one that, you know, is going to have lots of food, beautiful habitat, healthy corals, et cetera, and make it there and then hunker down and metamorphose and become, you know, a juvenile adult fish, contribute to the next generation, and the cycle continues.
1: The reason why you I guess you told that story is you you do describe these fish, uh, in fact, all marine organisms as elite athletes. And actually everyone on this call, it has a, an athletic background. So I know you do a lot of mountain biking and historically gymnastics, et cetera. I saw double in triathlon, but we all know that to be, I guess, performing at athletic level, you need really good conditions, diet, environment, et cetera. And this is the way you sort of relate it back to protect the environment is that these elite athletes, they need really good conditions And they're not chasing gold medals or fortune and glory. They're chasing, essentially, survival and reproduction. And if they don't have these good conditions, they just die, essentially. Absolutely. And it's a great way of telling a story, which I guess brings me to the key thing I was keen to talk about is that the Great Barrier Reef, it's literally on your doorstep. And you know this reef better than most. How is it? How would you describe it?
0: I think we're at a really critical time. For the reef, um, I've I've said this. We're in a critical decade in terms of what we're doing, our actions on the biggest problem that the Great Barrier Reef is facing, um, the biggest problem that coral reefs and marine ecosystems are facing worldwide. But you know, here we have a big duty to the Great Barrier Reef, a UNESCO World Heritage listed site. We have a lot of responsibility, and it is the biggest, longest, largest by area, continuous coral reef ecosystem on the planet. So we have this responsibility to lead by example in terms of our actions. And here in Australia, we, we haven't really been doing that, unfortunately. And I think that that's you know, some of the alarming aspects of um, starting to see what our inactions on climate change here locally look like. We've seen, uh, just in my career here in Australia so far, uh, 2016, 2017, 2019, 2020, we might be seeing another mass bleaching event as well. That's what really is worrisome to us. We know that that is directly related to climate change and that these marine heat waves that are causing this coral bleaching that is so destructive to the integrity of this critical continuous ecosystem, it's directly, these heat waves are going to become more frequent, they're going to become more severe, and they are directly related to the fact that the the reef, the ocean is warmer than it should be.
1: The Turnbull government, I think, gave a whole bunch of money to the Great Barrier Reef Foundation, I think, to the tune of about $470 million. Has that money been appropriately spent on the ground?
0: What... Concerns those of us that you know have been on the front lines of of this work for so long is that a lot of this money has been earmarked for some of the secondary and tertiary and you know down the list problems that the reef is facing. So water quality, crown of thorns, starfish, um, just other issues, and not addressing sort of that elephant in the room in terms of. Reducing our emissions, reducing our reliance on coal, oil and gas and, and stop approving some of these new projects that are on our, you know, environment ministers desks. I like to call it putting band-aids on an arterial wound. They're quick fixes, but they're, they're short-sighted fixes as
1: well. Key question is, is the reef in danger?
0: The reef is in danger. The reef is in danger primarily due to the effects of ocean warming and the increased frequency and severity of marine heat waves. It's compromising the health of coral reefs. We see that with bleaching. We've seen that over and over and over again since 2016. There are a couple bleaching events before my time here, but that's never been seen before in human history. It's directly re- related, directly linked to the increase emissions.
1: The reason I asked that question around, is the reef in danger, is because there was a, a UNESCO and a, another government organisation or non-government that classified the reef in danger, but there was a real pushback from the federal government around putting such a designation on the reef. But from what I understand, the, the decision is final. The reef is definitely going to be classified as being in danger. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, the United Nations uh, Committee, the UNESCO Committee, as well as the IUCN, which is the International Union on the Conservation of Nature, they came out with a task force to the Great Bear Reef in March of 2022 to see for themselves, to see exactly what's going on and to determine whether the World Heritage Site, as the Great Bear Reef, would be listed as in danger. After this reactive monitoring mission that happened in March 2022, they prepared a report. Luckily or unluckily, this was also happening in the midst of the sixth mass bleaching event that the Great Bear Reef Based. So 2022, the summer of 2022, the end of the summer of 2022, and the first time that a mass bleaching event happened during a La Nina year as well, which again had been unprecedented. So after their reports came out, um, yeah, it, it made for some, some sobering reading, even for those of us that are pretty much in the know and have seen with our own two eyes underwater what exactly is happening to the reef. The report also took to our government for lacking our clear climate change targets and not implementing these targets as well. What will this endanger listing do in terms of? what we do here in Australia, the global perception of the state of the reef. Well, it's going to encourage, strongly encourage the federal governments to adopt stronger emission reduction policies. And, and those have to be consistent with keeping warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius. That is the target that we have to reach. We know that we're already barreling toward 2 degrees Celsius warming. And that, with all of the models, all of the predictions, and every piece of data that has already been collected in the past several bleaching events, that type of warming is going to be fatal for 99% of reefs worldwide, let alone the Great Barrier Reef. So we don't have any time to waste, really. <laughs> we are in a critical decade to make those reductions in time. Wow. With two degrees warming, we would be looking at 99% of reefs in mass danger for bleaching and mortality.
1: Can I get a feel for what that actually looks like? So obviously, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm right in saying about 80% of all marine species spends at least a portion of their life in a reef environment. And if we lose 99% of all reefs, obviously that would have a massive, massive impact on you know a whole bunch of species. Recognizing also that a, a third of the world's protein comes from the ocean, what does that impact look like? You know, 99% of all reefs gone, that means 80% of all marine species are directly impacted, which obviously means 100% are all indirectly impacted as well. We, re- we rely on the ocean for food, oxygen, climate mitigation. What does that even look like, that, that scenario, that two-degree warming scenario?
0: That's a really scary scenario. What does that look like to me? Well, whether a species is spending their entire life on the great barrier reef or on a coral reef or not everything is connected so if we've got you know the the underwater rainforest so to speak that's that's being decimated by ocean warming and climate change then it's going to affect all other ecosystems on the planet both land and sea and that includes us you know here in australia yes we can depend on other sources of food for our protein Small island nations do not have that type of luxury. Small island nations require a healthy coral reef for sometimes their only source of protein, sometimes their major currency of exchange. Not only that, so beyond food, beyond a currency for exchange, protection from storms. And so the coral reef architecture around an island or along the coastline is, is protecting from storm surges, protecting from erosion. And we also know that with climate change, we're seeing much more intense, much more frequent storms as well. There's so much to gain from climate action, and there's so much to lose from climate inaction. What more data do we need? We have the data to show us that this is exactly the path that we need to be taking. Uh, we have the data to show us that, you know, for example, 2021 was the hottest year on record. Are we just going to keep doing that every year? Uh, I'm not quite sure about 2022 yet, but we had record temperatures on the Great Barrier Reef in November of 2022 before, you know, everyone went on holidays. We were pretty alarmed by what the data were looking like in, in November. And we're in the La Nina season as well, but we're We're already worried that we might be looking at another mass bleaching uh, this summer. So how many years in a row are we going to keep doing this? Uh, I guess that's the question. And what is it going to take? Well, it's going to take us working really, really closely with policymakers, really closely with our state government, with our federal government and on a global stage as well with UNESCO, with the IUCN, with the World Heritage Committee. And if this is the wake-up call that we here in Australia need to be serious about our action on climate change and seriously commit to reducing our emissions to stay under 1.5 degrees, then so be it. That is the wake-up call that we need.
1: And you mentioned the key threats uh, seem to be... Uh, climate change and ocean warming. Is it more the just increased average ocean temperatures or is it really those marine heat waves that you referred to that are causing those bleaching events? Or or is it almost a combination of a whole bunch of factors?
0: It's both. Elevated temperatures are the number one threat to marine organisms, marine ecosystems, I mean terrestrial organisms and ecosystems as well, and especially those organisms that I think, you know, back in the day, we used to call them cold-blooded, where their body temperature mimicked that of their environment. We don't call them that anymore. We call them ectotherms, but because they're mimicking, they're mirroring exactly their environmental conditions. And so all of the biochemical rates, all of the physiological rates inside all of those organisms are just going to keep speeding up and speeding up as temperatures speed up. I mean it's it's basic physics there. We understand it really, really well to a point where they can no longer sustain that. They can no longer provide enough energy to keep those rates going. And that's when you start to see species collapse, ecosystem collapse, you know, things like bleaching happening as well, which of course is a breakdown of that really important symbiotic relationship between uh, the coral animal and the, the algae that provides it with so much. So we understand the science extremely well. It is very much a combination of, already warmer temperatures on an average basis that are you know 0.9 to over a degree warmer Um, and that's happened since the industrial revolution and then we're starting to get these heat waves that are becoming more frequent becoming more severe so already warm temperatures and then a heat wave on top of that and a heat wave that lasts for a period of time so probably the most profound, the aha moment, I, you know, like scientists like to have the aha moment I had was being in the water during the 2016 event that happened on the Great Barrier Reef. And, and that was the first one of my career. Like I had heard about the 98 bleaching and seen photos, but I was in the water in the northern part of the Great Barrier Reef, just off of Lizard Island, where we worked really closely with a a research station there that's run by the Australian Museum, phenomenal location. And some of the most pristine parts of the Great Barrier Reef you could imagine and the best place to work. (laughs) I mean, so (laughs) tremendous. And my colleague Jacob and I, we were in the shallows. We were collecting little reef fishes for a lab experiment that we were doing at the research station there. And it was, we were getting an El Nino year, Okay. So El Nino and La Nina, if I can backtrack a little bit, these are natural cycles. Um, you know, we've all heard of them. We think of them as sort of the opposite sides of the same coin, which kind of they, they are in, in some respect. But when we get an El Nino year, we tend to get less storms, less cloud cover, less rainfall and less mixing of, of the waters. Okay. So if you can imagine, All of that is sort of the the perfect combination when you get a daytime low tide in the middle of summer, and none of that water is mixing, you don't get any cloud cover, it's full on sun. And that's exactly where we were, I think it was February 20th of 2016. And we were in the shallows, it was about 2pm, and we looked at our dive computers, which monitor temperature as well, and we're like, with a lot of expletives. uh these are climate change conditions. These are the conditions that we're simulating in the lab right now for like the years 2050, 2100. It's happening now. And I mean, it was eerie warm. And literally over the days to come, it was about probably a seven to 10 day window of time that we just saw this this timeline, this progression of That's when I learned about bleaching. That's when I learned exactly what that meant. You know, the fish were still there, but it was, and not to be, you know, kind of woo-woo about it, uh, because we did go back to the science about it, like exactly what are the fish doing? What's going on inside their bodies? How are they responding to this? But it was weird. You know, that was my first response. It was like there was death in the water and with this sort of warm, calm water and then what happens is the coral start rejecting their their algae, the algae leave. And so you get this weird sort of mucus film in the water as well during that. And then the coral, and it's, it's a little bit of a, a misnomer in that the coral get a little bit fluorescent. So they, they actually look really beautiful for this hot second before, like literally hot second before the bleaching happens. And that's when they lose that algae to the point where they don't have those beautiful colors of the reef. And you get that stark white, that bone white calcareous skeleton that's left over of the coral. So it's this weird, you know, stage before The bleaching happens that I think everything's in a really big stressed situation and they fluoresce. And then a day later, you start to get that white and then the murky water and the fish are like feeding on the murky water and feeding on the mucus perhaps. But then like, okay, it's this is maybe we've got to get out of here. After that, we published a paper of want to say about 20 different biomarkers of exactly what's happening step by step inside these fish when they start experiencing a bleaching event. And the, the timeline of that was pretty amazing as well. But that was my eye opening, you know, watching it happen for the first time in my career and just thinking, it's happening now. We don't have time. We cannot keep simulating the year 2050 and the year 2100 because it's happening today.
1: How does that make you feel personally like you talk about it having this eerie feeling and you're seeing it firsthand but obviously you know more than almost anyone that the abundance of life that the reef supports not just in the reef uh, I guess boundaries but more more widespread across the planet how does that actually make you feel personally when you see i guess death on a massive scale happening in front of you um uh-huh
0: sad Mm. disappointed um worried and those are those are three words that pop out of my mind right away you know kind of circling back i i moved to australia in 2011 with you know the my career dreams you know being started um and with you know the biggest dream of my entire life to be able to to do my research on the Great Bear Reef and and to make a difference. Um you know, a childhood goal, a career goal, a product of a lot of higher education, mm. a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that went into that. But I may be naive as well, you know, to be completely honest. I didn't expect that I would be seeing the effects of kind I thought we had more time.
1: Yeah. Wow, I
0: think everyone thought that.
1: On the topic of time, so fish have been, I guess, I think, evolving and on that planet for like 400 million years plus. They're considered, you know, all different shapes and sizes, you know, and obviously the sharks that I know is that that's a key passion of yours seem so menacing and resilient and can handle anything. Why can't fish adapt to a changing climate with more hotter conditions, more acidic conditions? Recognising that obviously the climate has changed over the last 400 million years.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great question. The sort of the bony fishes that we see today—they uh, have at least four hundred million years of evolutionary history. The, the sharks, the skates, the rays, the cartilaginous fishes—four uh, hundred fifty million years of evolutionary history—and they've gone through, you know, five major mass extinctions. They've gone through periods of very high oxygen in the atmosphere, and then, and therefore, the the waters very low periods of oxygen in the. The waters. CO2 levels that, you know, we look at the CO2 levels today, then they're alarmingly high. But when the fishes first appeared on the planet, they're, you know, 10, 20 times higher than they are today, temperatures of, of warming periods, of cooling periods, So yes, but it's the rate is the most concerning aspect now. And, and because we've seen these changes happen over such a very short period of time post industrial revolution, it's not enough time for a lot of species to make those changes at the DNA level to to adapt over generations to keep pace with the rate at which we're, we are changing their habitats, their environment. So. 400 million years versus mm. a couple hundred yeah. um, more. So, I mean, the changes that we've seen since like the late 50s, you know, so my parents' generation, I'm not blaming parents, but, <laughs> you know, that's what's really scary. It's a very short period of time and it's directly linked to industrial development. So if we look at species like Little Nemo, kind of going back to Little Nemo, well, they lay thousands of eggs, hundreds of thousands of eggs sometimes. And when those eggs hatch, development happens pretty quickly and and those babies can reach sexual maturity pretty quickly as well. And so perhaps many generations can go by within a few years. Whereas if we look at the blacktip reef shark, which is a species that's near and dear to my heart, a species I've been studying for quite a while. I do a lot of work with newborn blacktip reef sharks. And then recently I've been doing heaps of work with pregnant mothers. And what we know is that sharks and their relatives Their life history is a lot slower than the other fishes. So the mother might take eight to 10 years to reach sexual maturity. So when she can first reproduce and then when she does reproduce, she is pregnant for as short as eight months, but maybe about 12 months or so. She might have four babies. One might survive. And then that baby has to live in a nursery, maybe close to the shoreline where it's super shallow. Uh, Maybe there's extra food there so that they can grow and be safe from big predators like four-meter tiger sharks that might happen to be nearby, or even large adults of their own species, which is kind of sad. Live in that nursery for a period of time so they can just grow as fast as possible. But then... They have to go out in, into the reef, out into the environment, and keep growing and developing until they reach sexual maturity. So, you think of another eight years. So, even that likelihood and chance of survival, you know, at fastest, we could be looking at every eight years seeing a new generation. And what have we seen in the past eight years here on the grayberry reef? A lot of changes. So with some of these species like the sharks that have these longer generation times that are slow growers, that don't produce a lot of young and don't reproduce as often, we just don't think that they're going to be able to make those genetic changes, those changes to their DNA over multiple generations fast enough to keep pace with the rate at which their habitats are changing.
1: Look, it sounds all doom and gloom. How do we turn this ship around, Jodie? So what do we need to do to protect the Great Barrier Reef and other reefs globally?
0: We need to be role models. As individuals, we need to be role models. That's something that's really important to me as a young female I, I want to inspire the next generation because it is going to be this generation coming up that is really going to be tasked with a lot of these, these issues. And I, I want to leave it the best I possibly can and, and gear those, those young minds up for, for what the future looks like and that. That future can be bright and that can be positive and inspiring, but we need to do things a little bit differently than we have been over the past several decades. And that comes with science being accessible and working as scientists with those that are in those policy making, uh, decision making roles. But also those in the communication roles like yourselves, because we've got to get this important information out there. And we've got to, I guess, remind each other about how incredible the, in this case, the underwater world is. We've got to, you know, keep appreciating those gorgeous documentaries that were what inspired me in the first place to embark on my career because we protect what we love. But I think. While we might have the buy-in about how beautiful nature is and how we are only a tiny minuscule component, one species amongst trillions of species, but with the power to do either the most good or the most damage. And I'd rather opt for the former. So then it has to be relationships with those policymakers and being realistic and not only just making changes with our own personal lives and thinking about what kinds of changes those might be, but really pressuring our governments to do the same.
1: So, if you were in a position to pressure the government, and I suspect you are as a professor, of, I'd like to think you are as a professor of JCU on the footstep of the Great Barrier Reef, what are you telling these politicians or policymakers around how what we need to do to protect the reef?
0: Well, we have to stop approving any new coal, oil or gas project, full stop. Australia will no longer approve any fossil fuel projects. We have to, with that, gear up our economy, gear up our communities to transition to renewables. And that can be win-win. We have a lot of potential, a lot of opportunity really there for jobs, for a cleaner planet, and to be a world leader, uh, or even a state leader here in Queensland, in terms of that transition and what that means to the environment. 75% reductions by 2030, 75% reductions from our 2005 values. That's what we know needs to happen. And that can't happen with any new projects on the table. So that's the first step, no new projects. The second step is starting to decommission projects that are no longer good for the environment and getting ready a really, really effective and lucrative from an economical perspective and from a community and jobs perspective plan to, to transition to clean energy. I mean, we're the sunshine state here in Queensland. We, we've got plenty of that. Um, winds, you know, there's so many alternatives that are cleaner for the environment, better for people too, healthier for people.
1: You focus a lot of those solutions on energy. If I change take a little bit and talk about the food system, so recognising that methane is a really, really potent greenhouse gas, I think it's something like 20 to 80 times more potent over a 20-year time frame. And if you want to have a significant impact on on mitigating climate change, methane would be a, a key greenhouse gas to target. Recognizing that uh, the animal agriculture system is a a major source of that methane, but also recognizing that I think something like 76% of the the reef catchment is cattle grazing. How does that conversation go down around, hey, we need to kind of transition away from cattle in particular towards more uh, low-carbon, plant-rich food sources, but you're in the Uh, a a major cattle growing area of Australia. How does that conversation go down?
0: That was one of the decisions I knew that I could make as an individual person. You know, I think oftentimes with these conversations, we think that the problem is way too big for any one person. And so, yeah, I just celebrated my five years of completely plant-based living um, last week. So yeah, early early January, five years.
1: Congratulations!
0: Now. So that was that was one thing I knew that I could do. Um, I did it as a little bit of an experiment, but when people ask me, okay, why did you transition? You know, some, from largely vegetarian to completely plant based. My first and foremost reason is for the environment. I know that that yes, methane gas is it's one of the biggest contributors to the emissions that are plaguing the stability of the planet right now and and that's an easy fix for me but yeah we, we mm. do have a lot of communities a lot of families a lot of that depends on the the cattle grazing industry here in in Australia here in Queensland as well and so how can we help those families and those businesses transition to do things much more sustainably well if the demand decreases then that's going happen but we have to prepare for that we have to make it a healthy and secure transition so that we have those ideas in mind and and i think that's where it has to start is what what would be the alternatives what would be you know clean and healthy ways to transition cattle grazers and cattle farmers into a different industry with the knowledge and, I mean, immense knowledge, immense expertise that they already have so that we keep relationships really healthy and that it is win-win. So there has to be that. So it's definitely for the emissions, but it's also for the land as well. When I first moved to Australia, I had never tried kangaroo before in my life and i was i was interested um and so i started learning a little bit more about the terrain of australia and how it's just not really prepared for the the grazers like cows so the land doesn't work that well with hooves whereas kangaroos uh you can't fence them in so they're naturally free range i guess you wouldn't you know in that, you wouldn't be needing a lot of antibiotics. You wouldn't be needing a lot, you know a lot of, you know, other things that people try to avoid with the meat that they're eating. Uh, you know, very low fat, very high protein source. So, do we see a little bit more of a transition to that? I don't know. Could that be a great alternative? Could we be looking at more plant-based alternatives for those cattle grazers that are not only better for emissions, but also better for the integrity of that land in terms of the soil that needs to stay put so it's not eroding into the water, the pesticides and herbicides and any other antibiotics that are going straight into the waterways as well and into those catchments and creating all kinds of other issues that... The Great Barrier Reef organisms are facing, in addition to that whole climate change problem. So there's a lot that can be done there, and and I think we just underestimate our our capacity and our knowledge here in Australia. And we've done so many amazing things as a country. We've invented incredible things, and Wi-Fi. Come on, we can do big things, and we've got the passion and the resources, and definitely the intelligence to do that. So I think. You know, some some good think tanks there with some uh, solutions proposed.
1: Absolutely. look And look, full disclosure, I've, I've been 100% plant-based for eight years now. And I know you are still heavily involved in a whole bunch of sporting activities, uh, mountain biking, etc. I still compete in triathlons. We're, we're, neither of us are fading away uh, to a shadow or protein deficient <laughs> or energy deficient. Uh, fundamentally, we're the picture of health, if I'm b- really honest. Uh, so we're not uh, deficient in any way, shape, or form, but we got to recognize here: yeah, animal agriculture is a leading cause of deforestation, biodiversity loss, one of the the leading cause of, uh, loss, uh, of, the, uh, the leading of water pollution, uh, and one of the leading causes of climate change. And we can essentially turn all that around. In our next meal, like the transition to away from uh, fossil fuel energy systems uh, to re- more renewable, yeah, it's important, absolutely essential. But that does take time. We can literally uh, change the way we eat in our next next meal. And look, you don't have to go fully vegan like us, too. But you can at least act to significantly reduce the consumption of animal products, and maybe uh, eat them like a treat as opposed to two or three times a day, um, which we know probably isn't that good for your health either. So it's pretty simple. But I, I really I really struggle with the fact that we know these things. We know we need to transition from non-renewable to renewable. We recognise that we need to transition more to a plant-rich diet. It's been reiterated time and time again in various sort of publications, et cetera, but our governments have certainly dragged their feet in in relation to innovating and being leaders in the space. So subsequently, we're sort of not only sort of, impacting our own environment, but particularly our economy. You know, Australia could be a global leader in renewable energy and other sort of innovations around climate change mitigation and other sustainability initiatives and We've just dragged the chain. So, unfortunately, we're sort of missed a – when we are missing a, a golden opportunity to to be a real economic powerhouse in in and supporting various industries locally and internationally to transition. That aside, I, need, I know we need to wrap this conversation up at some point and let you get back to your amazing work. But I, I'm keen to know, are you optimistic about the future? Are you optimistic we can actually turn the ship around and actually help uh, protect our reef environments, particularly the Great Barrier Reef?
0: I have to be optimistic every day. Sometimes it's a struggle, but every day I have to make that decision to start my day with optimism and even if I'm just doing one thing and getting one thing done today that's going to make a difference. And yeah, I mean today a, a big part of that is you know really enhancing my I guess image by my communication and and getting messages out there um through this podcast, through some other avenues that I work with um you know, writing for the conversation and, and such that will help me maintain my optimism. It's hard, uh, but I think that we definitely have a chance um, if we can embrace this critical window and we can remember why we're doing this and think about what is most important. At the end of the day, we no matter you know what our background is if we're in the cattle grazing industry or if we're coal and gas or if we are you know directly related to saving shark species on the reef we all do have values that are quite in line with one another, and that's that we want a safe and healthy planet for ourselves, for our children, our nieces, our nephews, the next generation, and we want to enjoy our lives. And that's what it comes down to. And if we can all work together to make that happen, I think we can. And being a smaller country, I mean, big in size, but small in population, um, Australia I think we we have that capacity to to really shake it up and and set that example to the rest of the world. And if it's using the Great Bear Reap as that that landmark, world heritage site that we are so desperate to protect, then so be it. That has to be it.
1: Yeah. Australia loves to be the underdog. We love beating the english at cricket we love uh, beating the <laughs> americans at swimming we love beating everyone bigger than us uh, right. so why should this be any different and oh, I, I, no. I, I i like the idea i I, th- I honestly think we need to spin the narrative around the environmental challenge that we're facing and that oh, it's so big i'm like awesome where else would you want to be like uh, we are the grand weavers of the tapestry of history and i think we all think back it great moments of time where – and we think, oh, we would have done the noble thing and acted appropriately, you know, whether it be picking up the sword and with William Wallace and charging towards the English or being part of the French Revolution or or some other sort of noteworthy moment in history. And we always think that we would have done the right thing. We would have done the really effective thing to help injustice, essentially. And this is, from my perspective, climate change and the other environmental challenges we're facing – uh The biggest challenge that the human race has ever faced, I think that 's fantastic. Where else would you want to be than right here right now to help solve and and prevent potentially the greatest environmental greatest environmental catastrophe and almost human catastrophe? so I actually welcome the opportunity and it 's also great to know that there's other people like yourself and potentially millions of other people worldwide that are equally stubbornly optimistic to help save the planet and ultimately us. It's been a wonderful chat with you today, Jody. You do an amazing job in a whole bunch in your, in, I guess, your day job, but also the stuff that you do on the periphery outside your position description. So in that regard, thank you so much for your efforts in that regard. And, and also, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. It's been a wonderful uh, chat with you. It's been wonderful getting to know you. And like I said, just keep up the great work.
0: Oh thanks Brian. Well, you know, I can I can spend all the time in the world talking about my passion. Um <laughs> so it was it was quite a joy for me as well.
1: Thanks. Cool. Boom boom shake the room.
0: Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.